You remember that first car you bought without your dad's help uh, or a mom or another family member? When I started my accounting career at KPMG in St. Louis, my reliable but ugly Plymouth Horizon needed an upgrade to something nicer for my new position in life, that being a first-year audit grunt at a big-time CPA firm. Now, Keith was one of my favorite in-charges that first year. Hey, Mark, get a grand am. That's what he had. So Keith isn't in charge, I'm thinking. I respect him, nice car. So I did my due diligence for the next two to three months. Now, here's the funny thing. I did not even know Grand Amps existed on the highway until, well, then. They they were everywhere. And that's called the Reticular Activating System, or, or RAS. Reticular Activating System. RAS kicked in again when I started studying strategy from a business context uh, about 20 years ago. When my small consulting practice started to grow, I noticed more and more small businesses buying strategic planning projects sold by these management gurus. So I started buying every book I could I could find on, on strategy. They were everywhere. I just hadn't noticed them before. So When I see a new title on strategy, even today, it's hard for me to pass on them. And that includes the title we'll talk about today, Strategy First, How Businesses Win Big by Brad Chase. Now, Brad's perspective on strategy, it's simple, unique, and it packs some punch. Plus, he's approaching strategy from a marketing and product management point of view. Guys, I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf, and our chat with Brad Chase is coming up next. Before we hear from Brad, I want to give a couple of quick shout outs. A few weeks ago, I enjoyed a conversation with Judy Johnson, who is an expert in moving the organizational health needle upward, and I mean a lot. And in that show, she mentioned some tools her consulting team used at Canadian National Railway uh, during the time of Hunter Harrison, uh, this awesome, amazing CEO, and he was running CN at the time. Now, this past week, Judy's CEO, Mike McLean, a Pittsburgh-based aspirant, he wrote a message to me on LinkedIn, and he said I could share this. Hi, Mark. I wanted to let you know that I'm a big fan of your CFO Bookshelf podcast, so When I heard you were going to interview Judy Johnson from our company, Aspirant, on the show, I thought that was pretty awesome. The interview with Judy was terrific, as always. Mike, thank you, and I that means a lot to me. And again, thank you for letting us have Judy for about an hour for that discussion. And and Mike, just keep doing great work for your clients at Aspirant. And then finally, I have a short list of just three software vendors that I recommend for planning, reporting, and financial analysis, just three. And, and by the way, this firm doesn't know that. They, they don't know it. So Provix, for about the past, I'd say five or six months, has been mentioning the show directly and indirectly on two social media platforms that I participate on. And I especially appreciated the comments they made about last week's show with Jack McCullough on Rockstar CFO. So Provix, thank you very much. And just keep adding value to your great client base. Brad Chase 
was the marketing genius behind the Windows 95 launch. And I know he'd say to me right now, it was a team effort, but I'll retort by saying that he had his finger on the start button. So got you back, Brad. Accordingly, I wanted to know more about the story behind that Win95 launch. Well, uh, yeah, the marketing of Windows 95 was uh, a lot of fun and very challenging because it was a whirlwind of activity and pressure. Uh, but the, the key thing we decided early on that I worked on was building a strategy around uh, making Windows 95 a consumer phenomenon. And to do that, I wrote what was called the E strategy, educate, excite, and engage. We could go that into that in more depth if you wish, but a core component of that was the Windows 95 commercials that came out on TV. It was the first time Windows 95, uh, well, any Windows product or any product at Microsoft had had a product-specific commercial. And the ad agency kept coming back with you know, suggested campaigns and they weren't hitting the center of the bullseye, I like to say. But eventually they came up with this idea to base the campaign on the song Start Me Up. And that was a great idea for a lot of reasons, including the fact that we wanted to talk about, you know, sort of how the start button made things easier and made things possible that weren't possible before. But then they told me that they couldn't get access to the rights to the music, which made me a little angry, actually. Why are you presenting me a campaign that, you know, you can't actually deliver? And that led me to, you know, based on their recommendation to do the negotiations myself. And I could get into that if you want, but, you know, I did the negotiations with the Stones and we ended up getting the rights. Before we get into the heart of the book, I'm trying to decide, do I need to tease you for not actually getting introduced to uh, the Rolling Stones? You had that, you had the opportunity to go up and shake their hands, go up on a stage, uh, but you ended up not doing so. Should, Should I tease you for that? Have your friends given you a hard time about that? (laughs) <laughs> well, the truth is half the people, I said this in the book, half the people who uh, hear the story think I was an idiot for not meeting the Rolling Stones. And the other half think I was actually a genius for not meeting the Rolling Stones. So it depends on your point of view. So what happened was I flew to Amsterdam to negotiate with the Stones, spent all day negotiating. They had a, a upcoming, what was called Unplugged concert, which is a big thing for a while, MTV Unplugged concert. Um, in a small, you know, sort of couple thousand at best, uh, you know, venue called the Paradiso. And since I couldn't go to the um, to the actual concert a couple of days later because of my crazy schedule at that time, they invited me to go to the dress rehearsal. And I was one of only two people who weren't Stones personnel at the dress rehearsal. So it felt like a private Rolling Stones concert. And it was unbelievable it was just so great i heard them give each other a hard time and and they did like two hours of playing through the the, through the their list for the for the concert and at the end uh the promoter who i was doing the negotiating with said do you want to meet the rolling stones and i thought well this was a perfect concert why would i want to ruin it i'd met a lot of famous people obviously at microsoft and being on windows 95 because everybody wanted their hand in the windows 95 cookie jar and so I said, nah, this was perfect. No reason to, to ruin it. They don't really want to meet me. And candidly, I, you know, it would have been fun to meet them, but it's not like we would have been best friends. So, uh, you know, so I chose not to meet them. And some people do give me a hard time about that. You had a tremendous amount of success at Microsoft. And again, we're going to get into this. Windows 95, 
uh, MSN, a couple of other projects. Again, they were big uh, for you. The, the question I have is before those projects, did Microsoft have or did prior marketing teams have a strategy that they were working with, with product rollouts? Well, no, not one strategy. Each rollout was sort of unique to its individual situation. But, but Microsoft as a company had a, a series of very clear bets, which is where sort of where I learned the first part of my strategy first model. When I started the company, it was clear that Microsoft was betting on the PC. And if you go back way in time, right, the PC was just a hobbyist machine. It wasn't a on everybody's desk and in everybody's home as it ended up being. And that bet on the PC actually led to MS-DOS and led to Windows eventually. Um, and that bet on the PC was expanded to be a bet on GUI, which stands for graphical user interface. So, uh, you know, Microsoft was betting on, on Windows and to some degree the Mac uh, with its application. So, you know, there were clear big bets and most companies have clear big bets. You know, if you're Airbnb, you're betting on that whole, you know, sort of uh, auxiliary, you know, sort of uh, staying at, at someone's house or, or you know, or apartment uh, bet, right? That's a big bet. And most companies have big bets and, and Microsoft had those. So they've had a series of them. They've been on, now they're betting on the cloud and mobile more and stuff like that. But, you know, that, that was always clear part of Microsoft, but we didn't have one rollout strategy. The Windows 95 rollout strategy was unique. If you do a Google search on the word strategy, and we talked a little bit about this as we were emailing back and forth in preparation of this interview. But if you do a, if you do a search, you're going to get thousands and thousands of here's what strategy is. The, the number of books on strategy is just, I'm blown away. And I, I come down to, if you want to study and learn strategy, there's two ways to approach strategy. And by the way, push back if you want to. Number one Pick your pick pick a war from the past and look at each side, what was each side's strategy to win, and then pick one big battle within that war, whether it was a five-year war or a 14-year war. Number two, and I hope you smile at this, spend some time with marketers. I think anyone, with the exception of maybe, maybe the founder, I think if you want to learn strategy, spend some time with great marketers. And I'm looking at one right now as we do this interview. What is your definition of strategy? And by the way, feel free to disagree with me if you want to. No, I'll just expand on what you said. So uh, simply put, I call strategy your plan to compete. You know, more broadly, your plan to compete and achieve your business goals, whatever goals you happen to set. Um, And your strategy is all best, as I mentioned earlier, on making bets. Um, and generally companies have, not always, but generally companies have a fundamental bet. And that's what strategy is. And if you look at the history of the word, it, it was related to war. Um, and in fact, uh, strategy kind of, if you go through this etymology of it, it's, it's a, it really kind of refers to the general's art, uh, the art of winning the battle, the end of the art of winning the war, the art of assembling all your troops and figuring out a strategy to win. And so that's that's how I think of strategy. But simply put, it's your plan to compete. Now, people could do get strategy wrong all the time. They confuse it with tactics. They confuse it with, 
you know, vision. They confuse it with a lot of things, but uh, it's fundamental. There's no company you can name that has won or is winning in a marketplace without a winning strategy. Sometimes it's dumb luck. Most of the time it's well thought through, but there's no company that wins without a strategy, a winning strategy. And that's why strategy is first. We want to sell some books. We don't want to give too much away, but can we at least repeat what you said earlier? What is the E in strategy? Can you, can you go through that again? You've already mentioned it. Yeah, so uh, the strategy model, the strategy first model, has three key components, sort of the three legs of the strategy stool, so to speak. Uh, It's execution, market potential, and customer value. And I have a mnemonic to help people remember that, which is E times MC squared. Strategy equals E times MC squared. It's it's a fun takeoff on Einstein's E equals MC squared, his theory of relativity. So the strategy model, E times MC squared, helps you remember it because the E stands for execution, the M stands for market potential, and the C stands for customer value. And in most strategies, not all, but most, customer value is most important, and that's why you square the C. You've spent a lot of time, presumably, after your days after Microsoft, you've been around a lot of different small companies, startups. So there's definitely been a, a, a interesting life for you after Microsoft. As you look at all the businesses, maybe over the past 15, 16, 17 years, where do most businesses get it wrong on that E times MC squared? Right. Well, a number of places. It's hard to pick one. Um, One core component of the strategy is E times MC squared only matters relative to the competition. And so, Developing a strategy in isolation is one place that people make a mistake. They think they have a good idea, but they don't really understand the competition and where the competition's going. And that's one mistake people make. Another is customer value. You know, there's so many businesses that come out with products or have ideas for new products, and their customer value really isn't that compelling. And that's a huge problem people make. Startups make the problems. They have a good idea, but the market potential is low. And so, you know, it's a good idea, but if only, there's only a small handful of people who will buy it, that's not, that's not very good for the long-term uh, uh, potential of the business. So there's a number of things people do in terms of strategy where they make mistakes, um, and those are a few. And it goes without saying, perhaps, but execution, which some people think of as separate from strategy, is really integral to strategy. And you could have a great strategy and execute poorly and fail. And that would, you know, that happens all the time. Of course, you could execute well on a bad, you know, sort of a bad bet and you'll also fail. So you got to get the bet right. That's fundamental. I was going to say the word bet has come up already a few times in this conversation. How, how do you begin to decide which bet to make? So what I tell people is if you're deciding from scratch what bet to make, sit down relative to the competition and do an analysis and say, okay, what's, what provides customer value that's really compelling compared to the competition? What provides market potential? If your goal is to build a big, large business, you want one with a lot of market potential. And so you compare that to the competition. And then do I have the tools or the capability to, to develop the tools to execute well? And I just do that analysis compared to the competition and see where I come out. Now, there's a couple of caveats here. 
One is that not everyone wants to build a huge, gigantic business. So if you want, you know, let's say you have a family restaurant and you're very happy with, you know, the, the you know, sort of, uh, sort of revenue and potential you have from your restaurant and it's fun for you and it's rewarding for you. You don't have to build a million dollar business, right? That, you know, that's a lifestyle choice. So there are exceptions where, you know, you decide, you know, that there are other things that are important to you. But with that restaurant, you still have to understand what does the customer value? Yeah, absolutely. And I love to talk about restaurants because it's a great example of the model and work. You know, you have to have customer value unless you're in a commodity restaurant or, you know, so maybe someone like McDonald's or Burger King or those guys, it's less about customer value in terms of product, but customer value in terms of convenience. Um, but yeah, and market potential. I mean, think about a restaurant and COVID provides a, a whole new layer to this, but in most cases, a restaurant, how do you grow your market potential? I can only fit so many people in the door. So the model gets you to think about how do I grow my business in a way that makes sense? So I start doing takeout. I start doing happy hours. I start, you know, working on delivery of foods. I maybe sell some products, you know, like, you know, recipes for, you know, my, my rubs or, or whatever I, you know, I have. So, you know, the model helps you think about the strategy for your business. And in the case of restaurants where market potential is a big barrier, the model helps you think about, hey, how else can I grow my market? Of course, one of the key ways restaurants do that is more locations or franchises. I love being around marketing people, just getting to just pick their brain. And as I was reading your book, the, one of the first things that came to my mind, I thought, I wonder if I'll ever get to interview Brad. And if I do, here's one of the first questions I want to ask him. So you've got the whole concept of educate, excite, and engage, which, by the way, goes all the way back. And you talk about this early on in the book with Win95. Win are there any big brands out there today? Are there any big brands out there today that you're just thinking, oh, my gosh, they're so close. They're, they're missing it either on the education component or they're missing it on the, the excitement or they're missing it on the engagement. And I'm probably putting on the spot, but are there any brands that just think, oh, if they just did this one thing out of those three E's, any, any brand come to mind? Well, I can think of brands that are really blowing it in many ways, I think. Um, hard to pick one. I mean, Facebook is a brand that I think, you know, where its policies and its products um, have really hurt the brand. And they're still in a dominant position because they've really built some tall walls, which I talk about in the, in the book. Um, and they also have, yeah, they have some other, uh, you know, key products like Instagram, but, but, you know, their position in the industry and with consumers would be so much stronger if they didn't make some of the sort of PR and brand mistakes that they have made. Not every brand is educated, excited, engaged, the right strategy. It was for Windows 95, <clears throat> but curating your culture and building your brand are really, really important for companies like Facebook. And, you know, frankly, I think they've really blown it in a lot of ways. Um, they're still successful and they might get over it one day, but that brand's been tarnished. How about Tesla? Yeah. Yeah. Tesla is really an interesting because um, the brand in terms of the product is fantastic. Um, you know, they have built a really great series of cars They've made some, I think they've made some tactical or some strategic mistakes, sorry. Uh, like, you know, their upcoming cyber truck, I think is a, is a, is a strategic error. I think they should build a more mainstream truck first, but 
Um, but their founder and CEO is a very controversial guy. And so he, in some cases, adds to the brand and some t- cases takes away from it. I don't think you're going to change who he is. Um, but, you know, there are times where, you know, if I had the relationship with him, I would say, hmm, you know, you know, you should take a step back. And um, But I don't think you're going to change him very much. And that happens with a lot of these very, uh, you know, sort of successful and bright CEOs. You take in the book, you take this formula and make it very pragmatic. You get into the uh, strategy for scorecard. Can you kind of explain that concept? I, it, it may be easier if we were doing this on a chalk talk, but what is that scorecard? Yes, it's a way to get a, a sense, a gauge of how your strategy uh, is doing relative to the competition. So remember that the strategy first model is E times MC squared. So what I do is I tell customers or people reading the book to give yourself a score, give your strategy a score on execution, market potential, and customer value. Make the score between zero and five on a half point increment. And then do the math and compare that to the competition. And it's fab, you know, just fabulous to see people do this and see what, what happens. And it gives you a gauge for how you're doing. It's not a scientific model, right? I mean, you can't know for sure that your execution is a 4.5 or, you know, that your customer value is a 3.5 or, you know, those are things that are hard to judge. But relative to the competition, you could get a gauge. And in some cases, of course, you have to average the numbers. I mean, execution is many, many things, right? So you, you know, you take those things and you kind of average them out to get what your score is. And it's really a fascinating way to get a look at a market. In the book, I use the example of the iPhone. When the iPhone first came out in 2007, its score, its strategy for score was four times the competition, you know, because companies like BlackBerry and Motorola were not building very compelling phones. Then you look now and compare it to, say, let's say Samsung, right? The difference is much narrower, you know, because other people have caught up over time. And you know, I still have Apple at a higher score and Apple garners more profits than Samsung, but Samsung actually sells more phones worldwide than Apple. Best practices for using uh, the scorecard? Because again, I think it's I think it's outstanding. So what I recommend people do is use it when they do their strategy offsite, which, you know, even small companies should do on a regular basis, but at least every six months or so. And my recommendation is that you have your leadership team Fill out, I have a worksheet on my website you can use. Um, fill out the worksheet independent of the other team members. Because what you'll find, shockingly perhaps, but maybe not, is that leadership teams have very different conceptions of what the current strategy is. So first you fill out the worksheet, you give yourself scores, you, you write down what you think your strategy is. You get together in a room and compare notes, and you'll find that different members of the leadership team have different conceptions of what the strategy is. That happens a lot, not always, but quite frequently. And then you sit down and you say, okay, hey, you know, we're not as strong a customer value as our competition. What can we do to adjust and change? And you work on changing the strategy, try to get as much of a difference in score versus competition as you can. And by the way, we'll have those worksheets, the links in the show notes. You mentioned earlier, and thank you for for mentioning this, I have a quote, climb short walls, build tall walls. Absolutely love it. What's the meaning behind that for you? Right. So 
Uh, there's a lot of tools and tips I give in the book on how to build a great strategy. And one of them is to climb short walls and build tall walls. Climb short walls just means don't get into markets where you can't compete. You know, uh, I often say you're not going to go compete with Amazon and Microsoft in you know, cloud infrastructure services. That's just not something that you're, you're going to be successful at. You're probably not going to compete with Coca-Cola and Pepsi on mainstream uh, sodas. So, you know, those kind of things, those, those are just tall walls you don't want to try to climb. So markets where there are shorter walls is a, is a great way to enter a market. Once you're in a market, you want to build tall walls. And there's many different ways you want to build tall walls by providing value to customers and strategies to keep the competition at bay. You know, you could build marketing tall walls. For example, frequent fire miles is a marketing tall wall. You could have tall walls because of scale. You know, Boeing has scale tall walls. Someone like Costco or Walmart has scale tall walls. You could build network effect tall walls. So, you know, with an iPhone, uh, you have a bunch of apps and you use all those apps and then people, more people want to buy iPhones. Um, and they have other types of uh, those kinds of walls in the iPhone with the services and, you know, the AirPods that make you look more loyal to using Apple's iPhone. So, you know, Microsoft used that with Windows and Windows apps. So there's lots of many, many different types of tall walls that you can build to give you a moat that people have to try to get over to compete with you. This framework that was probably circling in your mind that you actually applied with Win95, it worked for other products. I guess MSN was a big success story for you as well. Uh, same, same strategy, same tools. It made a difference, right? Yeah, well, this the MSN is a great example for me of how I entered a business with no strategy. MSN, frankly, was sort of the laughing stock of Microsoft when I was asked to go lead it by Bill and Steve. I didn't know it was and that. I didn't know it was. That, I'm sorry to interrupt. I didn't know it was that bad. It was that bad. <laughs> it was really bad at the time. Uh, it was, there was no revenue. There was huge expenses. There was no traffic. There was no traction. And no one in the group knew what the strategy was because there really wasn't one. So I spent the first six months trying to learn what was there and figure out a strategy. And it took me some time. I mean, it wasn't easy. And I did some things very well. And I'm, you know, like most people, I also made some mistakes. Um, but in the end, I built the strategy based on search um, as a key way to, to monetize the network and using uh, shopping is another way to monetize the network. And then using our communication properties, like at the time, Hotmail, which is now Outlook.com, um, as a way to drive people to those ways we would monetize the network. And that strategy proved to be very successful. Most people don't know this, but in, I'm mean, gonna I think about early 2000, um, Microsoft actually was number one in the search worldwide and number two in the U.S. behind Yahoo. This is before Google took off. I would have thought it might have been Excite or one of those others I can't remember. That I'm never- Right, yeah, there was a lot of them. There was, you know, AOL and Excite and all these sort of uh, average players that were going on at the time. Uh, but no, actually, it was Yahoo um, and it was the leading search provider. And then we made search a priority because I knew you could monetize search. You know, people searching for dishwashers are going to buy dishwashers, right? And um, and so I made a big bet on search. We increased the effort on search in terms of resources significantly, and we made huge progress. Now, sadly, when I left Microsoft, 
uh, the, you know, other people in the company thought search was sort of a commodity and all that momentum was lost until, you know, and then Microsoft relaunched search with Bing many, many years later um, and never was able to get, you know, uh, much traction. I think Google has like 90% share still. I hope I don't get into trouble. I've sent you questions in advance. So related to this e-strategy, and I'm glad you're smiling. My question is, where were you with these three products? And, and, and by the way, I'm a Microsoft fan. If you look at my desktop, it's all my, I'm not an Apple person, but I've got three products and I've got the approximate rollout dates, but Internet Explorer 6, uh, a little bit buggy. Uh, did they follow an e-strategy similar to yours? Right. Yeah. So the problem with products like IE6, um, I don't remember exactly where it was. I think I was working on MSN or I might have left the company by then. Um, 2000 value. 2001, by the way. Right. So I, I was on MSN at that time then. Uh, so the, you can't forget the fundamentals. And the products you mentioned in that you sent to me, the, the same kind of problem happened with each one of them, which was customer value wasn't they didn't get the focus it should have gotten. You know, Microsoft has had some incredible versions of Windows, like Windows 95 and Windows 10 today. You, you know, calling it Windows 10 is almost funny because it's been around for so long and updated many times. But, but, um, but you know, those are really good versions of Windows and have done very well. And there's been many others. But the ones that didn't do well, you know, like Windows 8 or IE, you know, some of the early problems of IE6, that was because people lost, you know, uh, lost sight of the ball. They they weren't focused on customer value. So is it possible to focus more on the market size versus customer value? Well, that's a possibility. I, I just think, you know, even successful companies make mistakes. You know, um, make even companies who have the best strategy. I mean, Microsoft has done an amazing job. I mean, if you think about all the bets Microsoft has made, and it did an amazing job with, with the operating system business, did an amazing job with the with moving that to Windows and renewing it. Did great job with the applications business. Did a great job with the cloud business, and before that, the server business. Made a lot of great bets, but Microsoft made mistakes too. Made some bad versions of Windows where it didn't keep their eye on the ball, and the product wasn't great. Uh, made mistakes in mobile. Uh, you know, we had momentum on search, and then lost that after I left. You know, so there's plenty of mistakes big companies make all the time, you know, and it's a, no one gets strategy right all the time. And that's why it's important to review your strategy on a regular basis. That's a great point. We can skip over the Bing, which is rolled out, it looks like in 2009, but one where I thought, boy, why couldn't they have caught some of that magic from Win95? And that's Windows 8. Uh, Windows 8, I think I was using XP as long as I could. And then we had Windows 8 and I think I had Windows 8 for a while. Thankfully, it we had Windows 10. But again, that that whole concept of, of educate, the excite, uh, the excite part, it just wasn't there on the on the Windows 8. And again, I hate to be critical of Microsoft because again, I'm I'm a lifelong fan uh, of 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 Microsoft. It just wasn't a great product. I mean, that's the reality. Uh, it was really hard for someone already using Windows to transition to Windows 8. Um, there was some innovative UI components to it, but, you know, it, it just wasn't a great product. And, you know, what you learn in the strategy first model 
e times mc squared reinforces is that's the why c is squared because in most cases in most cases product matters most customer value matters most now there are exceptions if you're in a commodity business you're in the insurance business or or you know you're you're in the soda business those businesses it's all about out executing the competition and betting on things like marketing or or you know maybe out manufacturing someone but but in most businesses the product really matters and windows said well, H just wasn't a great product this is cfo bookshelf we ask every guest this have to ask you brad are you a are you a reader and if so what are some of your favorite books well i've yeah i'm a reader i'm even a part of a book club uh, my wife and i and that's a lot of fun uh, the recent books I've read that I really like, uh, Cast was a great book. Um, I read a lot more fiction than nonfiction, but uh, I loved that book quite a bit. A Gentleman in Moscow was a great book. I, I enjoyed that book a lot. Uh, Robert Cato's books on Lyndon Johnson, Master of the Senate was a great, great book. Uh, there's quite a you know large number of great, great books. Uh, in terms of business books, uh, the one I read that I liked the most Recently, it was probably Grit. Excellent book. Excellent book. Duckworth, right? Yeah. Uh, no, is that right? I, can't. Angela, I don't remember, actually. Angela Duckworth. I think that's right. Angela yeah, Duckworth, right. yeah. Fast and outstanding, outstanding TED Talk. Hey, where else can we find you? Again, the name of the book, Strategy First, How Businesses Win Big. Uh, we'll have in the show notes your website. Obviously, the the worksheets that you have available on the website, very generous. Uh, what else are you doing? What are some of your, your big projects these days? So I'm not a huge social media guy, but I do do, you know, have a following on LinkedIn. So I do that. So you could find me on LinkedIn. Um, I do talk sometimes. So you could look for that um, and um, have an agent that helps me do, do that kind of stuff. Uh, so, you know, that's where you'll find me is the book, uh, my website, LinkedIn, and sometimes you'll do talks or podcasts like yours. Brad, thank you very much. It's been an honor. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to do it. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. And now you know why I really like Brad's message on making big bets and his approach to strategy. I find it simple, clear, compelling, and memorable. So here is a homework assignment for you if you read the book. What big bet or big bets have you made in your business and why? Now, you can answer that question whether you are the CEO, CFO, controller, someone on the FP&A team, or whatever role you play in your company. Just that one exercise alone will get you to start thinking about the potential effectiveness of your company's strategy and trying to make a difference in the eyes of those you are serving. Next week, I'm anxious for you to hear our interview with Greg Graves. Now, Greg, he worked for only one company after he graduated with a degree in engineering. His last assignment was serving as the CEO at Burns & McDonald, the large engineering firm based in Kansas City, Missouri. Greg and I will be talking about his new book, Create Amazing and Employee Stock Ownership Plans, known as ESOPs. That's next week here on CFO Bookshelf. I'm Mark Gandy. Until next time.